You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Surprise. Surprise you're here. No. I'm surprised you don't have COVID. Me too. Thought for sure. I waited all weekend for the, well, I tested positive text. Nope. Two negative tests over here. But I have not gone to work since we last recorded. Uh, I think we recorded on Wednesday last week with Sean Roberts. So I have not gone into work since, which is lame. But no COVID. No COVID. Just all the other symptoms that you would associate with COVID. Yeah. Minus the smell and taste. I assume it's the flu. I don't know. I had a fever for three days and been pretty knocked out. But uh, I think I'm turning the corner. So knock on wood here. If that's what turning the corner looks like, Kirk, right before we came on, coughed up an incredibly chunky something. Well, it's probably phlegm, I would assume. Yeah, I assume so. I was hoping it was just poorly chewed food that was lodged in your esophagus because <laughs> no. that was super chunky. Uh, I came from deeper than that. You know what's bet weird? You know, when you get sick right now and like COVID times is obviously that's like where your mind first goes mm-hmm. and and then you get into it and this may sound bad and maybe some people will get upset, but kind of wish it was like one of those things that you can check off so you can sort of like breathe easy for the next few months and be like, oh, well, at least that's out of question or play for me for the next few months. And then for it to be something else, like probably the flu is what I'm guessing, which is still going around. Um, Then you still have to like, eh, well, COVID's still on the table for a little while, which is a little disappointing, which sounds really weird to say, but I'm sure others have felt that way. Yeah, there was some relief to get it. Lisa even said, she said, I think I had some anxiety like on the, in the peripherals about COVID. Like what if the kids get it? What if we get it? What if we're one of the people that it rocks? Mm-hmm. And after getting it, she said it was like a little sigh of relief that she didn't know she needed going, all right, like you said, like we did that, we know, we know now, and now we can move on. Mm-hmm. Well, you're back to square over there, though. You look bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, full of life, vigor. It's good. Yeah, I feel like it. Had a big workout yesterday. Felt like like COVID hadn't been a thing. That's fantastic, because you're only like three weeks removed, so... Mm-hmm. Right, three weeks. Yeah, and it's it's a it's an interesting thing now with COVID because with any other sickness, as soon as I'm done with it, I just move on, and you never think of it again. Mm-hmm. But with COVID, you're always looking for: do I have anything lingering? Because right. that's the big worry. If you if it doesn't rock you up front, and you're not one of the people that goes to the hospital, then the question is: what has it done to my lungs and heart long term? Mm-hmm. And my answer is probably nothing, but because I've shifted into my next stage of training with adding in threshold work and some compromised running, I feel like crap during the workouts, but you're supposed to at the start of a new phase when you're not used to that level of intensity. But now it's mm-hmm. like, hmm, is the, if, is COVID partially to be blamed for me not like nailing this workout? And normally you'd never think that. So it's weird to have that still like those little tendrils in my mind of COVID. Yeah, I have a few athletes who I'd say half of my athletes have gotten it probably by now. And okay. a few of them, like the cardiac drift afterwards has been the biggest 
notable factor, especially on recovery efforts, just having to really dial the throttle back and, and give their system a couple of weeks to catch back up. Seems like the heart rate just wants to shoot through the roof, which with me, I, I hopped on the assault bike today <clears throat> before we recorded just to try to get a sweating because I haven't worked out and and I, know, I ran twice last week. But um, <clears throat> anyways, uh, and my heart rate response seems okay and my lungs seem okay, which is like encouraging versus like the post-COVID yeah. deal, which can really affect you cardiovascularly. So I'll keep my fingers crossed over here. But being down and out, I've, I watched a lot of YouTube. I went back and I watched some Milrose games, as we talked about last week. Saw the performances we chatted about. If you haven't watched the Milrose games, and do you know, I actually don't know the origin of the Milrose games. What is it? Do you know off the top of your head? No, what I they don't represent? know an origin story. Okay. Well, the East Coast is the birthplace of track in the U.S., and they have the original track clubs. And I think it's just been an indoor meet that's been going on forever because that area of the country has the most like entrenched history of indoor track and running clubs there that are serious. Sure. That makes sense. Well, I went back and finally watched all those races. And if you haven't, okay. they're all uploaded onto YouTube. If you're listening and you want something to do on your next cross training or treadmill session, um, just like some really like good reminder, like it was so many debuts of people's professionals career and, and watching the races come down to tenths of seconds and strategy playing in on the indoor track. I watched everything from the 400 on up to the 3K on the men and women's side. So go check out the Milrose games on YouTube for your cross-training sessions, people. You know what was interesting for me was watching, for a lot of these, these athletes, it was their first big indoor meet of the year. Yep. Watching the rusty race tactics. I don't know if you'll if you'll remember this race, but the women's 400, Raven Rogers, who was an Olympian, I believe she took third in the Olympics mm -hmm. at the last Olympics. She dropped down from the 800 down to the 400. And Athene Moe went from the 800 to the mile, which is interesting. Correct. They they went opposite directions, mm -hmm. uh, which is again what we love seeing people do is test out other distances. And she probably should have won the race. And instead took dead last because she was rusty with her 400 meter tactics. But 400 meters indoor versus outdoor is probably the single biggest different race, in my opinion, mm -hmm. of running it indoors versus running it outdoors. Outdoors, you run your strategy no matter what because you're in your own lane unimpeded and you just get to the finish as fast as you can. And indoors is entirely strategy-based. And oftentimes, you can't run the best strategy for you right. because you run into too many turns and roadblocks. And she ran into endless, endless turns and roadblocks and eventually kind of gave up, ran into the back of someone and just jogged down the straightaway. Yeah. Tactics playing big indoors, don't they? Yeah. And I think that it highlighted to me that conversation we had a while back on sometimes you just got to race early and often coming off an off season and just knock the rust off of how you race an indoor track really like exemplifies how much tactics do matter in racing. Yeah. And sometimes kickers get out kicked and sometimes yes. they, they kick even more than you would expect and, and leave people. You saw it in the three K um, where Cole Hawker typically would out kick everybody. He ends up third and it was more of a tactical error I thought than anything. So it was, it was interesting. I think a kick is a little overrated at times because the way I see it, a hard finish and in, in running for anyone who's newer to running, having a sprint finish at the end is called a kick. 
doesn't really make sense, but you kick it into high gear, I suppose. Mm. But finishing the race off with a blistering sprint is seen as like this huge holy grail of a skill set. But as anyone who's actually raced raced knows, you only have as much of a kick as you have energy left. Yep. And what we saw with Cole Hawker, who his kick has been glorified, and rightly so. He's been blasting people away the last 100 meters for the last year at every level. He had to grind, and they were moving hard from 300 meters out, and he pulled up to make a move on the edge of the corner and then the edge of the next turn. And by the end, there just wasn't any sauce left. There was no juice there. But the one person who got to gradually accelerate and then blast off the edge had a kick. So kicks are not this, like, mythical skill set. A lot of it has to do with (laughs) what do you have left? Yeah, no matter how good your raw speed is, you can run the kick out of the best in the world if the pace is high enough absolutely and the 3k was an honest race from the start and he had to make some moves to stay connected up front that cost him from even 600 out and look what happened it's just so fun to watch and then i wanted to chat with you you know a little bit more than i do but i think this was yesterday or the day before we got to bring up the young family yeah i think if you pay attention to collegiate uh track and cross country um you might have heard the name nico young one of the big up-and-comers. He ran well in the Olympic trials for us, didn't represent the team, but gave it a good run, I believe, in the 5K. Runs at Northern Arizona right now. Yep, Northern Arizona. And Nico Young, who is, I believe, a sophomore now. He's probably 19 or 20. One of the best American distance runners we actually currently have. Um, He has a younger brother in high school. I think Lex or Lexi Young, I believe, two younger brothers. Leo and Lex. Nico Young holds the American record in the 3K at, like, 756.9 756.9 and Nico's younger the high school brother record. the high school record the U- yeah I think it's the high school record and Nico Young's uh, younger brother one of his two younger brothers Lexi ran uh 757.0 which is about a tenth of a second slower than his older brother's American high school record to just think from the same family there's always a bigger discrepancy than that in talent, you feel like. Like, they both, both may be good, or all three may be good, but maybe there's enough discrepancy that's like, oh, well, Nico's the clearly the best talent in the family. Mm-hmm. To have your younger brother on the cusp of breaking your, your national record as a junior, like, that family is insane, and that performance was insane. Yeah, yeah, the, the young family, Nico was a phenom. He was hailed as, is he now the best high school runner ever? He was in that conversation. And he's got two younger brothers now doing what he did and running faster at each age than he's run. Wild. And there's also the Salmon family. There's two brothers at Newberry Park, I believe Newberry Park, and they ran at the New Balance Indoor Grand Prix as well and ran phenomenal. One ran 358 or 357 and outright won the pro race. Broke the, broke four in the mile, yep. Which is faster than Alan Webb ran indoor the year he ran, I think, 353 outdoor to set the high school uh, mile record. He ran 353 outdoor. That got him on the cover, Sports Illustrated, mm-hmm. the holy grail. Yeah, wasn't there like almost like seven or eight guys that went sub four in that race? Yeah. That that kid, yeah. And And it just goes to show the progression of running in our country right now because they've already flown to more meets than I think Nico did his entire high school career. Yep. That it used to be Alan Webb would make waves when he flew to a race and ran against pros. And now the powerhouses are just doing that. They're flying out. They're finding the new balance grand prix indoor or the new balance indoor grand prix meet is a big deal. And 
There were like five or six high schoolers there. Yeah, but think about they're it. They're just doing that now. Well, they're doing that because their talent warrants them doing that. We have a we have a big crop of I think American contenders to like the East African contingency coming up. And the thing I like most about the young, and I don't know the Leo. You said is the other one. How old is Leo? Leo and Lex. I believe they're both. I want to say juniors, but I don't want to get that wrong. But the thing I like most about the Youngs is that they're just like a humble group of young guys that have no ego, enthusiasm for running. They don't they don't put off that vibe like I know I'm the next best thing. They just put out the like hard work, smart work, showing up every day pays off sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. And it's just good to see that enthusiasm without any of like the, uh, I don't know, the fringe crap that sometimes you can see, you know, it's like good kids running fast. I like seeing it. And this is one high school. So Newberry Park has Lex Young, who just ran three seven fifty seven oh six at yeah. the same meet. His brother did not go because he has some tendonitis he's dealing with, I think. Okay. But he's almost every bit as fast as him. And then Colin Salmon ran 358.81 in the mile. And Aaron Salmon ran 801 in the 3K. This is four kids on the same high school My team. My goodness. That's insane. I wonder what the transfer process is with those guys. If it's the, uh, you know, if they're all really in the district or they're all coming from afar, which either way, I don't blame them. But yeah. Well, so how old is Leo then? So Lex is a junior. Leo and Lex are twins and they're both 16. That's insane. Almost 17. So to equate that, for those of you who don't, like the kilometers don't click here in the States, running like a 757 3K is the equivalent of running like Let's call it, I don't know, let's just say an 832 mile just yeah. to be safe. 415 mile back to back. 415 mile pace for two miles back to back. Incredible. Anyways, that was fun to see. So he, Colin ran 358 in the mile and he is 18. Aaron ran 801 in the 3K, which is about 835, 836 in a two mile. And he is 16. Incredible. And Lex and Leo are twins, almost seventeen. Are they for? Are they identical? Or are they fraternal? I'd like to look at those. I don't know. I know what Lex looks like, but I don't know what I thought fraternal. Fraternal. But I don't All know. Right. Um, and you want to know what three fifty eight mile pace? Speaking of uh, the mile, go set your treadmill to fifteen point one miles per hour and see how it goes. And most treadmills don't go above fifteen. <laughs> they don't. So we'll let you just run at fifteen at like one percent incline. A lot of them can't half it. percent. Yeah, twelve or twelve five, but. Anyways, that's our running world update. For oh, that's week. right. Most only go to 12. They go to five-minute pace. They go to five-minute pace. Yeah, it's hard to find one that goes faster. So you're going to have to run on like 6% incline. Yep. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But what this goes to show, not only is our talent pool there, because that's always the question, why are we getting crushed by small European nations and East Africans in the distance world? And there's been studies into physiology of the East Africans that they're genetically superior and they're all born at altitude and grow up running. So mm-hmm. there's that. But that you can't explain away the Eastern Europeans and the small little countries, the Scandinavian countries. But the best explanation I've heard is that we have all those athletes, but they're playing soccer, baseball, basketball, football, because running's not the number one priority. But it's starting to become a more of a pipeline at some of these areas where you see one athlete have a ton of success and then a bunch pop up in that area. So we're starting to tap more into that, but it also goes to show the power of following someone's path in their footsteps. 
or you saw it with the Ingerbertsons, you're seeing it with the Youngs, you're seeing it with the next generation of people who had someone to watch and follow and just accept that, hey, this is the way it is. You just mm-hmm. do this and you're good. You kind of manifest that. And it's really powerful and cool to watch. I ain't going to be in my older brother's shadow. He's going to be in mine. Yeah. I like that. And you almost don't know better. You don't. But I think the thing is with U.S. distance running versus even like European or East African is now some of them go and run for universities. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them when they're they're picked and they're running pro versus going to college like the Ingebrigtsens, correct? They've run pro since day one. The last American, yeah. and you know better than I do was Alan Webb ran one year at Michigan and then went pro and signed with Nike as like a 20-year-old. But typically people in the States see out their four or five-year college career before going pro. And so you don't see them on the big circuits right away because they're running their collegiate meets. Maybe if they're lucky, they pop up at an Olympic trials when it aligns well with their career and we see them on a big world stage. But otherwise, the Europeans, also the Africans, I mean, some go to school, don't get me wrong, but a lot of them just, if they're quick, they're plucked, they're pro. And that's why we hear the younger people other places in the world pop up earlier because our guys are running their course through the university system before they go pro. Yeah. Yeah. We have a, it is a strange system where in our country, if you're a prodigy at anything other than athletics, you're shuttled right into a high paying job. Yep. Like if you can forego university and make six figures, you do it because that's smart. Cause the point of going to university is to be able to get a job afterwards to develop your skill set to be able to do that. So if you can bypass that, you do it. Except athletics. It's it's seen as a, a irresponsible route to skip it to go pro, but I mean, that's the, if the kid was a math prodigy, you'd tell him to go work for or an engineering prodigy, you'd be like, "Yeah, go work for Google at 17 because they're going to pay you six figures. Why wouldn't you? You can always go back to college later or they'll pay for you too." But if you're a prodigy in running and Adidas is offering you $500,000 a year, People are like, well, you know, you could get, go get a free education and be set up for life afterwards. So, yeah, we we do waste a lot of time trying to fit three seasons into our stud college athletes. But uh, Drew Hunter did it. Oh, did he, he skipped out early. Cole Hawker. Cole Hawker left after one year. Yep. Even uh, people from our area. Um, I'm blanking on the name now. Our steeplechaser who went to Madison for one year. Man bun. Evan Yeager. He yep. only did one year of college and he has an Olympic medal. I do feel, yeah, there is more now that I'm thinking about it. But they're few and far between, where every East African with real talent signs and runs immediately. Correct. That's what I was getting at, is like the percentage who goes pro early in their career here is like nil compared to... It's it's inverse. Completely. 99% of them try to run pro, 1% come to the U.S. and go to college. Here, 1% go pro and 99% go to college. Yep, exactly. Just something interesting to note, but it'll be fun to see the young crop shake out. That's what I'm looking forward to because we might have the best young crop in that like 16 to 21 range that that I can think of in recent times. We had like the Ryan Hall, Dathan Ritzenhein, mm-hmm. Alan Webb crew, which was like very impressive. But Galen Rupp. Galen Rupp. But we have these guys like breaking their records and running yeah. faster, younger. So I don't know. It'll be fun to watch. I have two takeaways from this. The first is that I think it decreases the pressure on the individual. For a while, one female per year. You'd have a Mary Kane. You'd have uh, Ephraimson. You'd have a, um, even going back farther, like you had Shalane. You had some people. You had uh, Kara Gouch. There was always one who was like the great white hope. Yep. And that was it. 
and you had one guy each year who'd come out and be like, could this be the new future of running? And it, the burnout rate for pro athletes itself is just super high, and the not panning out rate is really, really high in every sport. So for, for, for all the hopes to be on one person, it just exacerbates that process. But to have six or seven people to share the load, it makes it less like critical for each athlete to, to have to face all that pressure alone. Yep, I agree. And it creates their own little intercompetitiveness, which, yeah. which I think can also be helpful to be the one to rise above when there's so many. Like, you know, that makes you better. And I think this is one of the rare cases where I'm going to say social media is such a huge benefit. Because distance running is a fringe sport with very few social benefits. Yep. It's just not popular. It's not cool for young kids. But they're now seeing groups. So Drew Hunter grew up a superstar and started that team, Tin Man Elite, and they train out in Boulder now. And they're, they're superstars online. They have their own apparel. They have their own logo. They post weekly and daily videos. And they get hundreds of thousands of views constantly. And, and social media is now turning these runners into almost like equal footing with some of the other sports sensations where now the kids are like, Hey, there's a real reason to do this. I can, I could actually have some notoriety. It's kind of cool to run these days, which it hasn't been for a long time in this country. Yeah. And it's given them a way to make a living, which it's table scraps for runners. For most of the runners, you may have, you know, five to 10 American distance runners at one time who have contracts that can really put a roof over their head and food on their table. And then you have a hundred others in the very distances who might make 20 grand a year and work at their shoe store locally, Mm -hmm. part or full time to make it work. And so like giving an outlet like that, like social media, I do have to agree with you. It's allowing them to actually like have a real chance at a young age and not live in poverty. Yeah. It's it's cool to watch and, Mm -hmm. and it bodes well for the future of our running and the takeover is happening. The old heads are kind of moving out of the sport and the young bucks. What's a female version of a buck? A doe? The young does? That's not. That sounds that a little sound weird, cool. but that's what you mean. The young lady bucks. They're that's... coming up through the ranks and they're making a splash. Molly Seidel was one of those great hopes when she was a multi-time national champ in high school. And she disappeared and she had, well, there's another cautionary tale of a young stud who didn't pan out. And now she's back, you know, winning Olympic medals. It's, and she's still young. Yep. I like it. Should we, uh, should we move on, hop into our question today, which also leads into our topic? Yeah, we have a two-part question. Actually, it's just two questions. The first one is not the topic, but I want to hit it. It was, in fact, last night, a guy was messaging me. He said, hey, shoe question. Shocker. That's now the majority of the questions I get are shoes, Kirk. You're the guy. You're the guy. Nothing makes me happier. But he said, I have a a 50K coming up on rocky terrain. Should I go with something like VJ? Something, it could be wet. It's going to be rocky. Um, Who knows how the weather is going to be? Or should I go max cushion like a Hoka? What should I do? And that's the kind of question everyone faces when they move to a distance they're unfamiliar with. Do I go with foot lockdown and stability of a low profile shoe with great grip? Or do I say what shoe is going to support my body with unlimited cushion and protection throughout the whole run? But I'm not sure about the stability and I'm not sure about the grip. Everyone runs into that. Everyone who ever jumps into a marathon or an ultra or even a long distance trail race that's not ultra distance, they all run into the same. So kind of just wanted a quick answer for everyone how we go about handling that dilemma. 
Yeah, well, I would say uh, you answered the guy's question, or did you save it to to do so right now? I answered his question the way I said, I I can't recommend to you what to do. I don't know what you currently run in. I don't know what your body responds best to, but personally, here is what I would do. And then I told him, but I'm curious what your answer would be as well. Well, yeah, I don't know. I'll probably give the shorter version and assuming you'll, you'll elaborate. I'm going to keep mine short actually, because I think it's very simple what you do. Okay. Well, uh, especially if it's a new course and if it's potentially a new distance, um, first of all, like show up and pack more than one option so you can get there, see the terrain and feel it out. Um, if it is a new distance for you, uh, you absolutely, Oh, can I, I pause you? Mm-hmm. He has two and a half months before race day. Oh, so he's got some time. Okay, good. Yes. So he's got time to play basically experiment. So that should obviously be decided maybe before race day in your training. But, um, I've had, I've mentioned this before, but this is just my personal philosophy. Like that more is more as the distance get further and sure a shoe that weighs an ounce or two more than the lightest, sexiest racer is going to end up being a yield, like a net positive when it saves your legs from all the pounding a lesser shoe or a lower stack height shoe might provide. So even though the shoe weighs a little more, it may end up saving the legs just enough to be a net positive for you. So my philosophy is like, if you're really waffling between shoes, go with the one that's going to offer more support, more protection, maybe a little more cushion. Um, cause it could just stave off that sort of damage from all the pounding mm-hmm. over duration. So that's where I would, that's where I would start. What about you? Yeah. I said buy both. Yeah. hundred percent. Buy both and alternate them on your medium long, your long runs and your long workouts and your body will prove to you by race day. You have two and a half months. You're going to know mm-hmm. by the time you, cause you got to start building up your long runs and workouts anyways, to, to run a good hilly 50 K you're going to have to get in the next two and a half months, a minimum of six or eight good long runs in. Yep. At least do three in each shoe and your body's going to tell you you're never going to regret having two options because the other one just becomes your, I wear it for the lesser distance. Like mm-hmm. it's worth investing an extra hundred, hundred fifty dollars uh, rather than having an awful race. Cause you're already paying almost that much to sign up. You might as well double down and have a good experience. Yeah. And don't judge, you know, the worth of that shoe off the first hour of your long run, judge it off the last 30 minutes. Of course, your feet and your body's going to feel better in those VJs that are flashy and lighter initially. And you're going to be like, yep, here's the ride I want, but really pay attention down the road. Um, how things really feel, the balls of your feet, how your ankles feel. Do my quads just feel a little more fatigued in this shoe versus that shoe? Like those little things go a long ways, but you usually don't like, don't judge a shoe by the first steps, judge them kind of by the last. And that becomes more and more true the longer your distance is. You and I both have a lot of the same shoes. And we have our shoes that feel like a dream up till 60 minutes or 90 or two hours. Like you and I both, if we had to go race Tahoe, you know, uh, a two hour mountain race, have a handful of shoes that we would just feel like a rock star the entire time. But if they sent us out for a second lap when we got through to the finish, sometime in the next 10 to 40 minutes, we'd realize I've made a mistake. Those same shoes that feel great for two hours are not necessarily going to feel great for four. Exactly. Yeah. So if you had to pick your shoe right now, 450K on the terrain that this gentleman described, which would be your three that you would waffle through, waffle around with. Just give him something here. I would probably, my the lightest, least cushioned I could possibly go for a 50K would be something like the Scott Super Track RC. Mm, 
like that shoe. If it's really like a technical terrain. But even that's got to have like a 24, 25 millimeter stack height in the heel. It's not a minimal shoe because I, I need the support as the race goes on. And then I would have probably either a Speed Goat or a Mafate as my high end and then one thing somewhere in the middle. And those, those are the three. And that's, for me, it's it's like a 50K is not one off my speed. It's one off my stamina. 100%. And that, those two ounces that are going to make me feel fast for the first hour are going to leave me feeling trashed in the last two hours. So I for ultras, I err on the side of more. And for shorter races, I err on the side of less. Yep. Yeah, my shoes would be, um, I would love to say the Hoka Evo Speed Goat, but that Evo is no longer being made, which breaks my heart. So if I still had a fresh pair of those, that'd be that. Or a newer pair of the Hoka's and Alls. You and I were talking, I think, off mic the other day, and that shoe is so good for like 100 to 150 miles, but that foam really breaks down, and then it just Mm. leaves you feeling flat. But out of the box, those Hoka's and Alls are just fantastic and then uh, I think if it was super, super sloppy, it was truly a sloppy course, I-, I could get away with a pair of like VJ Extremes, but it would have to be very soft. The footing would have to make up for the lack of give or yeah. cushion in that shoe. I couldn't run a hard course with that because it'd catch up to me about the last hour. You know, twinning the race online, Tim mm-hmm. Lambiris was messaging me the other day. He got a pair of uh, the Innovate like t- Ultra 255s or something like that. Uh-huh. And he got in, he ran them, he's like, hey, I love the shoe, but this is not an ultra shoe. I could not run an ultra in that. And I said, I absolutely agree, except that you, I could, but only on one type of terrain. Innovate's made for fell running. Mm-hmm. Soft, moist, squishy grass and mud with some rock. You know, in Killington, on in the Green Mountains, on that exact type of terrain, I ran an ultra in the Innovate X Talon 190s. Wow. Which is like a seven and a half, eight ounce shoe with three mil drop and like seven mil of cushioning. I love that original 190. Yeah. Oh, so good. But it's because I was either going steep up or steep down or run or scrambling. Like I wasn't pounding the same stride ever in the ground so soft. Mm-hmm. That same shoe I wouldn't take above like a 10K on a flat, smooth trail because I, so it, not only does the distance matter, but the terrain matters so much. Horses for courses with the shoes. Horses for courses. All right. You want to intro the, the real topic for today? Yeah. Are we? I guess we don't really need to ask this person's question because it'll tie in. But um, I just thought with me being sick now, I'm on day seven. Um, you just got through COVID and raced shortly after COVID. Um, we have not done an, done an episode yet on training or racing through or after getting sick. We haven't just mm-hmm. talked out the nuances and our beliefs there. And I mean, with the number of athletes and clients I've had with COVID in the last two months, it's astounding. Like this has come up constantly. And here we are like not addressing the topic yet on our podcast. I almost feel a little silly. And it took me being down and out to be like, well, I'm I'm trying to navigate how to not lose fitness right now. We'll also get better. And here I am practicing self-restraint, trying to you know, pull my, my stuff together. And so it's just topical, man, for me. And you're kind of on the other side of it. So we should chat it out. And we also had a listener question. Um, I believe if you want to read it or not, but it was about what, do, how do I approach my training post COVID? Mm-hmm. I got to imagine a few listeners out there in this boat or have been, or will be coming up. So first of all, 
the first thing I do is I classify three zones of the body. Is the sickness in like sternum or lower? Is it from sternum to throat or is it chin and above? Okay. And to me, that's my most important classification because if it's chin or above or sternum or below, that is all lumped together. But if it's between chest and throat, that's the tricky part for me. Mm-hmm. That's the tricky part. Do you classify differently or is that kind of all the same for you? Um, I just add in one uh, and it's non-discrepant of everything you said and that is running a fever. Um, okay. But a fever aside, then absolutely. It's basically trachea and above uh, yeah. and trachea and below is kind of how I look at it uh, for sure. Yeah. So that I'm on the same page there. So if it's stomach based, if it is bowel based, if it is head based, I just train as is and I lower my expectations. This is not necessarily my recommendation to everyone because everyone reacts to things differently. Mm -hmm. I don't run huge fevers. So even when I have a fever, I train as is because by this point, 21, 25 years of athletic experience, I know that fevers don't do much to me. I'm not a huge fever guy. Mm -hmm. You know, my daughter runs right up to 104, 103. The second she has a slight anything, her body just goes huge fever. That's not me. I climb a degree or two and that's, that's it. So if it's stomach or head, I just charge through. But again, the important thing is I lower my expectations. Okay. I don't need to hit my pace. I don't, if it's a three hour long run and I get 90 minutes, that's okay. But I just, I don't adjust things for those. But if it is lungs, throat area, that's where I cut out all intensity. Well, yeah, I think we should break it break it down first into like, all right, when should you work out and when shouldn't mm-hmm. you? Like the first decision, like regardless as to how hard or easy you go, like when is it, yep, green light, like go ahead and give it a try. Let's not even talk intensity yet or red light, like don't be an idiot, don't work out. Um, you know, for me, the, the first thing uh, where it's the, the hard red light is a fever. Um, I ran a fever for three days like about a hundred, which isn't crazy high, but much like you, I run about 97 flat or 97.3 for like my baseline temp. So I was up almost four degrees at one point, which is like pretty high. Um, fever's a no go, like no matter what. And if it takes medicine to get your fever to break, that doesn't count. Like you, you gotta be able to hold out, like have, hold a stable body temp. Um, that's just like so much metabolic work when your body is processing. So first for me is, is the fever thing. Um, And then the second thing is if it's notable, like when you say like your sternum or so or above, um, like if you're hacking up gunk and you can feel it's coming from your lungs, um, you know, you would think in theory that taking those deep breaths while going out and exercising might break stuff up and help you hack it out. And it does to a certain extent. But it also opens all that up and allows all that like infection to get in there even further. And you end up like net worse for the wear tear or for the effort. So, so lungs and then, and then fever for me are no go. Um, I have not taken this advice in the past at times and I'll give you an outline of how that turned out for me. Uh, This time I am, but that's where I start. What about you? What are your hard nose? Well, I don't get sick very often. I get the start of a sickness and that's generally as far as it gets. I don't, Mm -hmm. so I have feeling crappy and I have sick 
And if I feel crappy, again, I just proceed as usual and lower expectations. I work out through just about all of that. But if I'm sick, sick to the point of like alternating between chills and fever, then it's not beneficial. If the best thing for me is sleeping and I'm miserable doing anything else, then I don't bother. And if I have a good stretch, I might go walk on the treadmill or ride on the bike a little bit. But like at first sign, I just stop and there's a zero intensity component. So do you feel crappy or are you sick? And I think it's usually pretty clear. Right. It's kind of one of those, if you have to ask, like you can't afford it because what's the benefit of, of skipping, of not skipping a day, like in the long run. One extra day of workout doesn't change your trajectory. But if you push it one extra day and now you miss a week because of it, like that, that risk reward's just not worth it. So if there's any doubt that it's not just feeling crappy, then, then you skip it. I agree. I think people push the panic button as soon as they realize, oh shoot, like this is a, something real that's going to knock me out for a little bit, whether it's a COVID mm-hmm. or I, I believe I have the flu. I don't know. I haven't gone in. Um, like it's easy to hit the panic button and then feel like you're losing all this valuable time and you need to just squeeze it in. Like no matter what, like even like I'm tough, I'm going to tough it out. And I'm telling you that you're wrong. If you're actually like truly, truly sick and not just feeling a little crummy. I, uh, you know, we got San Luis Obispo coming up for me in five weeks. I think it's five weeks, less than five weeks. Jeez. That's, and that's flying up. And here. I lost, I lost an entire week last week. I didn't hit a quality workout. I ran twice and kept it aerobic and probably shouldn't have even run the second time on Saturday. But point being, if you think about how the body works, so to speak, and we go back to all that stuff and physiological adaptation. For example, I ran twice last week at 70 minutes. I kept my efforts aerobic and theoretically that should help my needle from moving the wrong way. Even if this lasts another week and I don't get to do any quality work and I just pick and choose recovery bouts, um, science would tell us that our metrics shouldn't change a whole lot and that it is okay. Like you don't need to hit the panic button, rush back into it, and then put yourself further in the hole. Three years ago, twenty no, 2020, um, I got the flu. It was the first time ever, about five weeks before Jacksonville. Your first flu ever? Ever. I never got the flu until 2020. In my whole life. Wow. Never got a flu shot or anything either. Anyways, I guess that's all catching up with me now, but um, which is just the way it is. But anyways, and I was hitting the panic button and I was out of work for a week. I ran with 102 degree fever. I took some medicine and went out and ran nine minute pace with a heart rate I've never seen at nine minute pace. I did OCR mile repeats. We always talk about five days after my onset of symptoms, as soon as my fever broke and I was in the hospital a week later, getting antibiotics for pneumonia. And I was so set back. I didn't come back to being myself for almost a month. It took a month away from me. And then I couldn't even really salvage my fitness. I go to Jacksonville, take 11th, felt like shit and was disappointed. If I would have listened to my body up front, you always say pay now or pay later. Like that one workout, I need to get it in that key workout we always say that doesn't change your trajectory. And like, if I could go back to 2020 Kirk, it would have been like, dude, chill for a week and just get over this mm-hmm. and then get back to it when you're ready. And so point being is like rushing it, like just hit the relax button. You're going to be okay. You're much better getting healthy before you hit quality work than trying to push it early. It's just going to set you back. At least that's been my experience. Yeah. Well, as runners, our primary 
needs are cardiac and respiratory. Yep. That's the systems we stress the most. Those are the systems we rely on the most. And so those are the systems we have to baby the most. Mm-hmm. If those two pieces are ever compromised, then whatever we did to compromise it was a bad choice. And that's that's the way I look at it. And and you're right. Like how the, how does the body work? If it can survive a, a deload week whenever we want to without it impacting our fitness, after a big race, we can take a few days off and days down. And after a big training block or in an off season, it's spring back just fine. It can do the same thing when you're sick. Yep. Like you can you can just shuffle that week into all right. This is a deload week. Pressure's off. Who cares? But ten days of total inactivity before you start to lose VO2 max benefits and 20 days before you start tapping into true fitness loss. Those are our golden rules, which we have to keep in mind to avoid going stir crazy. Yeah. And just to remind you, like, what are you going to lose? Let's say you get something that really knocks you out, right? What are you going to lose in a week off or 10 days where training really looks shatty? Like mine's going to end up looking you lose a little bit of resistance to impact. So you might get a little stiff and sore more than you would when you get back to strength work or like, you know, hard road running and you might lose a little biomechanical efficiency. So what does that mean? You might feel clunky for your first two weeks back and, and your physiological markers aren't going to change. So like on the cellular level, so you're actually going to be okay. Yes. There are going to be some rust to bust off. Of course there will be. And you have some residual effects of your illness of course just like post-covid effects but um you know if you got a race that's four weeks out and you're kind of getting over your sickness and you do it right i don't think there's any reason that you still can't show up and be pretty much your best self by that point if you navigate navigate correctly yeah and the key there is to be consistent with your training always so you can absorb these down weeks exactly and then make sure it's totally out of your system before you reintroduce intensity yeah. And I, and I want to ask you about this then, but so my approach here is I've lost my fever, but I still have the chills, the body aches, I'm super congested. I just feel like shit, right? Headaches, it burns when I breathe hard in my sinuses, all, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff. So, uh, return to aerobic work. Could I, if I had to, with a gun to my head, go out and do tempo run or intervals? Of course I could, but I just believe like that extra tax on your system just doesn't like outweigh the potential cost. So I think transitioning out of something, whether it's COVID or whatever other bugs are going around, which there's a bunch that we just don't get don't get the headlines right now, is just what's the harm in, in a few aerobic efforts? Don't have to hit quality on Tuesday because it's Tuesday. Go out there and just get your bearings again and push everything back. So my advice is um, to ease into things with aerobic work, you know, test the waters, make sure, you know, your aerobic work doesn't knock you out the rest of the day or the following day. Just like make sure there's no rush. There's no rush. There's no rush. You guys can hold me accountable to that by looking at my Strava this week if you want. But that's that's how I feel about it. What about you? Like, because I know in the past I've called you, Brack, and like on a race, like I'm supposed to leave for a flight. I remember a couple of years ago in Vegas, I was like, Brack, and I woke up with the worst sore throat and cough. I feel terrible. What should I do? And you said, well, go race. I would go race. And I did go race. And it was a good decision at the time. I didn't have a fever or anything. But point being is. I know a lot of times you, you've kind of pushed through, so I'm curious as to your take take on it. Well, the first thing is I think that I recommend training through more than the average person would. But I also recommend avoiding intensity 
more than the average trained through person would. So I love, I don't know if love's the right term, but I constantly use zone one and some zone two work for myself when I feel crappy because it's, it feels good for me. I'm the person that I get more sore on an off day than on a recovery day. I, my body likes being moved and lubricated and warmed up and just taken through the paces. And so like COVID, for example, I worked out every single day. Even when you did have that low grade fever. Yeah. And the fever wasn't never spiked for me. Okay. On my worst days, I waited until I was feeling the best. And then I went and I did something. It was always minimum. My lowest day was like 40 minutes. My highest was 65, but it was zone one almost, almost exclusively. And I'd let it drift up to zone two if I was feeling okay, but I had no goal other than just move and don't do anything dumb. And even if you felt junky while you're moving, knowing that that's therapeutic for you in some regard. Well, that's, that's where it becomes personal because I didn't feel junky once I started moving. Okay. I generally respond to that. And then later in the day, I'll be wiped out or tired, but then it just, I use it as an opportunity to nap or sleep. So the one day I was, I think I told you about this. I was feeling bad. My head was feeling a little weird. My lungs were feeling weird and I started to get worried and I just pulled the plug. I was like 28 minutes into a 60 minute incline run and I just switched to hiking and I still felt it. So I stopped. I was like 30 minutes, 32 minutes in now. And I walked upstairs, drank some water and realized there was a shoe package on our porch, opened them up. I'm like, well, I got to put them on. They felt good. I'm like, ah, okay. I went back downstairs and started hiking again and felt phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Started running, ended up running for 40 more minutes. And that was my longest workout day. So I did listen to my body and then I listened to it again. And it was just like ebbing and flowing. It was strange. So, but I did all low in low intensity and nothing high intensity because I just can't risk the two of the things that are most important to what I'd like to do, which is being able to breathe hard and pump blood hard. Yeah. And I think the key there is, um, when in doubt, like keep the intensity low. And I actually, mm-hmm. for myself here, um, I think your three day rule really comes into effect when it comes to quality work. Yes. Meaning coming back being like, could I work out today? I think I could. Okay. Do I believe maybe I could do a quality workout today? I don't know. I think maybe. I don't know. Like push it back. Give yourself three days where you're certain. And you can fill that time until then with aerobic work. That's what I'm going on. I'm going to try my first run tomorrow, I think. But keep it aerobic. Um, But anyways, yes. Effort is big. Well, I didn't fully answer your question either, which was about racing. Sure. Racing... I give my advice based on the person. I don't look at you or me as the regular person. Like we're not a pro athlete, but we're not doing it just for pure enjoyment. There's somewhere in the middle there for us. And our flights are already booked, but we paid for them ourselves for the most part. The race matters to us and we can afford to be knocked out of commission for a week afterwards if we have to, because we control our own schedule of work and our training isn't our lifeline to success, but we like to do it. So like we can miss a week of training after. So for us, I always say, roll the dice, go race. Cause you're either going to feel good or you won't, but by not going, you guarantee you don't have a good race and you might just have yourself a race. I've had a lot of good races sick. Now there are levels of sick. Right. If you're alternating chills and sweating through like, no, you're not racing, but if you're wondering, like, could I, I couldn't I, I give the opposite advice. If you have to wonder, you could probably race. Yep. And it probably won't go well, but what if it does? 
So that's the advice I would give you. It might not be the same advice I'd give a client of mine who has a day job that is like high stakes, you mm-hmm. know, C-level business stuff. But for us, I think we can get away with that because what if we're knocked out of commission for a week? If we're risking it for a workout, it's not worth it. But for a race that matters to us, yeah, go roll the dice a little bit. Yeah, I think there's like this <clears throat> this like gray zone when it comes to being sick is like if you got something coming on and it hits you and your race falls on the first day or two of that, like let it rip. Like go out there. Like that sickness, sure you feel like crap, but cellularly like it hasn't been breaking your body down for three, five, seven days. And a lot of times I can pull something pretty special out being sick. Load up on some drugs if you have to. Get out there and race. I know not everybody will agree with that. But then there's this window where you've been sick for three, five, seven days, and it just breaks you down. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I would have been much more likely to race the first day or two of being sick than, like, if there was a race this next weekend, probably not a great idea for me because I'm just broken down and need to come back from it. So, like, I, I, my philosophy on racing is, like, in the first couple of days, yep, or make sure you're free and clear and feeling, like, completely better before hopping back on the race course. But there's, like, that dead zone after the first few days of being sick where, like, it just broke you a little bit. That's how I, my body responds. So that's how I make my decisions. Mm-hmm. How do you make your decisions on that on that front? Yeah, if you're on the way in or you're on the way out, generally I'll race. The times though where I'm really really sick, like you just wouldn't even consider racing. It's not enjoyable then because you can barely even get out of bed. But the other times, I it's funny. I would skip a workout but race. Yeah, I agree with that because the race matters to my life, and I understand. Yeah, I'm gonna probably set myself back a week, but that's worth it for a race to me. That's not, again, it's not what I advocate for all the athletes I work with, but if it's something you prep for, for 12 weeks and you've already booked the travel and you're like, Hey, I'm taking a down week anyways, next week. Then sometimes rolling the dice is okay. But in terms of getting rid of intensity during training, like we know to be true that our foundation as runners is aerobic. So spending extra time running aerobically is never a bad thing. And we also know that when we go anaerobic and we do a lot of that, it slowly erodes our aerobic base, our aerobic foundation a little bit. Yeah. And so getting a little quick refresher there during the year, again, it's not a bad thing. Missing a, a week of intensity doesn't hurt you because you just got to play at the other end of the spectrum for a bit, which is actual work for your body that's beneficial, even if it doesn't feel or affect you like actual work does. Yeah, I 100% agree. And something, I don't know what you said, just triggered this uh, thought, but um, being down and out and sick and missing training doesn't count as a deload or recovery week. And then you go back to like super high volume to make it up like, oh, I didn't work out or train or race or you know, nearly the output because I was sick. So that counts as my recovery week. And now I'm going to go make up for it all in the next week by smashing myself. No, your body didn't really recover in the way. Maybe from resistance to impact a little bit, it did get a breather. But when you got something knocking you out, like ravaging your system, that doesn't mean you got a clean slate to start from. And that counts as like a recovery week. And then people go and run way too hot out of it because they feel like they got to make up for lost time. No, go yeah. right back into your training as planned. Be smart. Your body is resilient and will respond much more positively than you think. But like it doesn't count as your recovery week or deload week by default as far as your system's concerned. Your body is actually under a lot of stress that week. Different stress, but 
I just want to point that out because I had a couple of athletes with that need to make it up. You know, should I make up last week's workout or try to squeeze in the quality day on top of everything you have assigned for me this week? Be like, no, let's just leave that in the past and let's move forward because making up for it's not the right move. That I'm really glad you brought that up because I'd like to just make a 99.9% of the time rule, which is there is no making up in fitness. There is no rushing the process. There's no cramming it in because you can't change your stress recovery adaptation cycle. And if you're already stressed coming in, trying to do extra just ensures you don't absorb the workouts. It's going to set you back like 99.9% of the time. There is no making up in fitness, in training. There is no cramming it in. It defeats the purpose. The only time you would even consider something like that is if something freak happens right before the Olympics or world championship or uh, a qualifying event where you just have to say, listen, all rules are out the window. We're going to do whatever is possible in the next 10 days to get us ready for a race that our life kind of hangs in the balance because of. But 99.9% of the time, there is no making up fitness. You just move forward in the best way possible. Yeah. And as soon as you remove that option off the table, then you don't make bad choices with how do I get back to training? Mm-hmm. I think not like this is a direct correlation, but we refer to this often, or I refer to this episode often. Um, it's the tapering episode on the Science of Ultra podcast. Rest mm. in peace. They decided they're done. So they haven't made any really? new. Yeah, the Sean Beard and the host. But it's like one of their first episodes, episode six or something, tapering. And they go through it with an exercise physiologist uh, very studied about like what fitness you can maintain through a taper and what stimulus it takes to maintain all of your high-end fitness. And this is about tapering and a healthy taper into a big race. However, the same rules kind of apply to you if you're detrained or backing off due to illness. And it's just like a really nice comfy blanket to listen to uh, or to sleep to sleep on because listening to that will help you relate to the fact that like, you're not going to lose your fitness as quickly as you think, unless you have lung damage or something from like a COVID, mm-hmm. which could impact things. Um, it's just like, I go back, I've listened to that one like three times now when I need to hear it to remind me to do less. And so for a reference point, you've probably already listened to that episode because I've referred it a bunch, but the tapering episode might just help you understand how your body actually responds to, to stimulus or lack thereof. Oh, that's a good point. And I think it is worth everyone listening to that that episode you just learn from it but you also will feel reassured from it like it'll save you from yourself at least once in the next training cycle yeah yeah so i feel like that kind of leads us into the the capper to this which is specifically how do you return to training after covid or something like covid i think we could lump in pneumonia in there things that affect the respiratory system and or your heart I'm sure there's a lot more we could lump in there. Yeah, I think anything, the flu or anything, anything that gives you like, especially when anything provokes a fever, like any sort of sickness that provokes a fever and then you got to recover from, yeah, lump it all in there. What do you think? So we had a question from a guy, I believe it was a guy. If it was a a woman, then I apologize. I have like 20 beats per higher response immediately doing anything right now. Should I just throw out perceived effort? and heart rate right now and just go on paces to run my aerobic pace it's costing me threshold heart rate hold so on should hold i on. just move is this hypothetical or are you actually experiencing this no this is a question i received this this week okay 
So I'm 20 beats higher. Should I just throw out my heart rate and my perceived effort, my perceived exertion, and go off just my paces until that comes back in line? Otherwise, I'm practically walking to run my actual aerobic. That was the question I received. Mm -hmm. And I gave him the answer that he responded, shoot, I was afraid you might say that. Which was, no, do the opposite. Throw paces out the window and only go off of heart rate because your body's telling you something. Yeah. Well, we play both sides of that coin, though, don't we? And I know you're going to agree with me on this. And that is, if you're truly feeling better, um, absolutely, your heart rate is the sole indicator on your recovery days. But then it's kind of like the worst of both worlds. It's like, well, if it's a quality day, then let's not look at the heart rate monitor and go hit our hard repeats. And the results will be what the results will be. Mm -hmm. Granted, you're feeling okay in life. Do you prescribe to that model in this case? No, I don't. Because there's too many unknowns and unknown unknowns about COVID right now. Okay. And and it's there's too many stories of people who never get it back. And so what is the real big risk here of staying zone one and zone two for an additional few weeks until your baseline metabolic functions return to normal your baseline cardiac functions respiratory functions return to normal like is, is it ideal for your training schedule no but because there's quality written down on paper doesn't mean you're contractually obligated to screw up your cardiac system because of it mm -hmm. so so no i i see zero benefit if you're trying to run at 130 heart rate and at your normal pace you're now at 150 that is so significant that you can't mess with that single digit stuff or under, I would say like five to seven beats or under discrepancy. Yeah. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Mix it up a little bit. Maybe hit some threshold or some sub threshold work, but 20 beats like that's your body's dealing with something significant. And the only real thing you're going to do is set yourself back further. And you're going to be really, really frustrated because you still won't be able to hit your paces. You're talking COVID specifically or everything? COVID specifically was the question. Yeah. But coming off of anything that affects your heart or lungs, until you're back to almost normal, intensity just truly doesn't matter. And yeah. it's not beneficial. There's no rush. There's absolutely no rush. This is constantly the long game. We're constantly going to feel pressure to get ready for the next thing, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Even if your race is three weeks out or three months out, you're going to feel the same desperation to make a bad decision, I feel like. So yeah. Airing on the side of caution. I do agree with that. I I haven't experienced that cardiac drift um, post-illness a whole lot in my life. I don't know if you have. So it'd be a tricky one to navigate. But heart rate doesn't lie, and that tells you what stress your body is under. So always, always watch that versus pain. No, I'm not a cardiologist, and so I shouldn't be giving medical advice. But I look at correlations in what our body does. And with humidity and altitude, I see 8 to 10 beats difference in some of my efforts. And so if my sickness is doing that or under, I kind of treat it the same way. Mm -hmm. Which is, all right, I'll still go out and do my stuff and I'll adjust my zones a little bit and lower my expectations. We said it with humidity and altitude constantly. Just lower your expectations and go get the work in. But... Humidity and altitude, they shouldn't raise you 15 beats or 20 beats. If they are, then it's so hot and humid that you probably shouldn't be working intensely anyway. And so mm -hmm. I don't. And I do the same thing with sickness. 
Yeah, and I think resetting expectations is actually the key here because what happens is you get sick, you come back, your first let's talk about like your first quality workout comes out that you're you're ready to hit, and then you end up super frustrated, disappointed, and sort of deflated with the outcome. Like you just gotta go in to your first quality workout knowing one, maybe I'm gonna ease into this thing, and two, like don't worry about your metrics. Your body will bounce back in the next couple of weeks, but for me personally, whenever I hit my next quality day, like I will not put any stock into the results of that. It's all about just reminding my body to feel a certain way while working somewhat hard. And I know that in 10 or 20 days that that will come right back around, but it's just like, don't find reasons to get upset here. Yeah. Find reasons to know that it's going to get better and don't let your metrics for a few weeks after really being sick even play into this. Just know it's part of the process. Trust it. Don't let it ruin your day. Like that's silly. It's child stuff right there, right? So like just know. Instead of throwing up I've had a few pout a little bit with their metrics. So maybe maybe this one hits a little bit for me. Like afterwards they're just like really on themselves about how their metrics yeah. suck post getting sick. And don't be. Like don't be. It's not your fault. Like expect it. It's okay. I'm super slow still. And that's okay. Yeah? So the, here's one of the this isn't a downside, but if there is a downside of us spending so much time with exceptional people with great minds and great stories is that everything starts to get a little cloudy on who said what. Sure. So I don't know if you said this or one of our guests said this, or if I read an interview with someone who said this or heard an interview or someone said this, but it was such a profound, simple statement. So maybe you can correct me on who said this, but mm-hmm. no one ever in a post-race interview calls out a workout that was me that was you that was i i that was my brilliant mind there kirk that was profound really profound and it stuck with me ever since that that whoever that person was said it that's how profound it was i didn't remember the person it was so profound it even blocked out who said it wow that's profound but it's there's so much truth there when you cross the finish line the winner does and they call them over and they say how did this happen they never say well i gotta tell you I nailed this workout and you never hear them say, you know what? I got a little panicky and I crammed in some training or (laughs) I missed some time and I made up for it. I had a crazy two week stretch where I just threw it threw everything at the wall. That's never it ever. You sometimes hear them say, I just had a great plan that came together and you sometimes hear them say, I've just been injury free and I have chained together training blocks and I knew I was fit. I just needed a chance to prove it. And you sometimes hear them say I was sick or injured and I wasn't sure what kind of fitness I had here, but I just rolled the dice, but you never hear them say, man, I tried some crazy stuff and it Mm -hmm. worked. And so if you never hear that, why do we aspire to that? Why is that what we default to as soon as we're set back? Like, Oh shoot, cram, 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 cram. It's not a thing. So thank you, Kirk, for that profound quote that now just reverberates around in this empty mind from time to time. We'll make it a, a bumper sticker. You have to just revert back and trust your lump sum body of work that you've done in the past and know that that doesn't just leave you because you get a sniffle or a fever or at the snap of a finger. You've made those bank deposits for months, years, maybe even decades in our case. And know that it's there for withdrawals still. It just doesn't feel like it at the moment. Like It's, it's just how... It goes. Now, if you're one of those who's spotty with your training and, and you feel like your next race is hanging by every workout coming up here, we may not be talking to you directly as far as our approach right now because, like, 
it may not shake out for you yeah. because you haven't earned it. But if you're somebody like a Bracken or a me or any anybody who takes this seriously and has been consistent over long time, this is just a small speed bump that you got to slow down for temporarily and you get right back up to speed after you've you've passed it. That's how it works. Kirk, that statement is a good reminder that there is not there is not like a a solution to every problem. Like you said, you just have to draw your deposits on all that investment you've made over years. Mm-hmm. But if you haven't invested, there just isn't a good answer for you other than start investing. Start mm-hmm. saving. Like there isn't a short-term fix. In terms of analogies for this, if you're talking about you got to just trust your savings. If you haven't saved, you don't take out a high interest credit card to quick get through that because <laughs> you know what you're never going to have is savings mm-hmm. ever. It's the same thing with training. If you haven't built up a lifelong consistency of savings of training, quick going out and cramming in a bunch of workouts when you're compromised or in a compromised time frame means that you're never going to build up the consistency of training. So you just can't. Sometimes you just have to look at an athlete and say, hey, you're going to have to take this one on the chin (laughs) and be okay with that or skip the race and say, I'm focusing longer term because if you don't save, you can never have savings. (laughs) That is the, that is like a tried and true money principle and it applies to training. I'm glad you said that. And I'm also glad you said the last little thing about you may have to skip the race. It is okay to skip the race if you're not sure where you're at or you're not confident in how you've responded or come back from being sick. Um, Rolling the dice sometimes is a smart decision, but it's also like you don't got to be tough and show up if you're not confident that you're quite back yet. I think it's okay to pull the plug on certain races um, for your long-term development because that's always priority. So glad you mentioned that too. Well, I'm uh, I'm satisfied with the body of work we've put into this podcast today, Bracken. You always usually have one more thing to wedge in there. What do you got today? I have nothing. No. Do you want me to come up with something? I guess I have one thing. Do it. Well, it's not about the topic. It's just a, a thank you. I made a little um, ask for people to write reviews uh, if they hadn't yet because... Our influx of new reviews was looking quite sad as of late, and mm. we had a few people hop on there and write us reviews, including the the astounding Ryland Shadig I just looked this morning. So thank you, Ryland, and others who wrote reviews. Appreciate that very much so. So some people listened and responded. So thank you. You walked me into my final piece then, if I have something to, that I need to add in to have my Bracken one up here at the end. <laughs> yeah. First of all, Thank you for writing those reviews. But second of all, Rylan is the example of what we're talking about here. Rylan broke a bone in his foot at the Utah race, which was his first big race of the year. And he made a national series podium in a big star studded race. And his future was super bright. And he took his, his rehab seriously. And he could have put, there was rumor he was going to race the, the Tahoe North American championship that he was right on the verge of being ready or not, and he pulled the plug, and he was so tempted to race. And then he could have maybe been healthy enough to race Abu Dhabi, but he just didn't risk it. And it had to have been torture for Rylan. I haven't talked to him about this, but he's a competitive man. He's already been a pro athlete in another sport. He's as competitive as it gets. It had to have been literally and figuratively killing him inside. Mm Mm-hmm. 
to skip those big races under a regional championship and a world championship when you maybe could have been healthy enough to go. And instead, what happens? He shows up the first race of the year and knocks off who most everyone thought was the fastest upcoming racer on the planet. And now he's looking at jumping into Arizona in a few weeks because he can. He put in his time. He built his savings back up. And now he gets to go spend it. And I guarantee he would tell you it was worth it. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. And uh, speaking of maybe skipping races... I'm, I was thinking of maybe going out down to Jacksonville or Arizona, and now I'm looking at the timeline and thinking it might be one of those that I might have to skip. We're going to find out how I come back, but sounds like Arizona is going to have a, a VJ, a Mark Godet. Sounds like potentially a Ryland. It's going to be a, if you want to go get uh, get your wheels going and test them out before San Luis hmm. Obispo would be a good place to do it. I don't know who is all showing up to, to Jacksonville yet. I'm sure uh, – um, I'm forgetting the, who am I, who did I race against down there? Alvaro, Alvaro Vasquez. Oh, Alvaro will, probably, will be there, yeah. We'll be there in Jacksonville. I'm sure a few You'll others. Cole. To, yeah, probably Cole, yep. But we'll see. Good point you brought up there. Is that it? You brought that up. I Did I? I, I was know. happy to just ride off in the sunset today. Today's the first day I'm trying to get through without, like, cold medicine in my system. We'll see how that goes. You did good. Thanks, Bracken. Guess what I have arriving? More shoes. Nike Vaporfly next percent two. Oh my goodness. Are you just salivating? Got a real good uh hookup on those. You must have one hundred and eight dollars. I believe that shoe runs almost three, two seventy. What is it? Two seventy nine. Yeah, I was looking at them the other day as well. So this gives me the opportunity to spin these babies and provide a little review for the public. Well, my Saucony Endorphin Pros came in almost five weeks ago, and I have yet to put one run in them to this point. So I still got I still got something to brag about, just not yet. This kind of feels almost dirty to say on here and, like, cringy, but uh, all the old shoes that I tested and didn't work for my foot, I'm throwing up on eBay. Mm-hmm. So right now I have the North Face Flight Vective and an Infinite Vective up there for like 60 and 70 bucks if anyone wants to go snag those things do you know what your like ebay username is so people can just look up all the shoes you have on there you're roughly a size 10 right that's what it hovers around all of these are going to hover between nine and a half and ten and a half with some odd sizes that i received by mistake and then a lot of unworn shoes that i received the wrong sizes and couldn't return or they Mm -hmm. sent women sizes instead of men so i'm just throwing them all up there they're going to be crazy cheap like those flight vectives are 199 and I think I have them listed for 69 or something just, just to get rid of them. I got 34 pairs of shoes that we have to get rid of because it's just stockpiled building up. So my eBay username is Bracken, but with numbers, BR4KK3N. And who says we don't monetize this podcast? Look at this. I have dozens of dollars sitting on there to be made. But really, if you just want a good pair of shoes that you know was babied, Go snag a pair. BR4KK3N. That's right. Nice. That was nice. my original PlayStation Network username. Mm. Uh, mine was DeWind09. DeWind. Still is for most things. I was a freshman in high school, and uh, the senior said, man, you run like DeWind. DeWint. Stuck ever since. And here I am, a 38-year-old man, still with DeWind as usernames. <laughs> That's all right. We do what we can, Kirk. We do what we can. We should shut up. Thank you for listening. Hopefully, you're all staying 
healthy out there. And if you're not, then just be smart about it. Don't be an idiot. Peace. Peace.